Welcome back to the Truth About Cars podcast, also known as the T-Tac podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor. We are the Truth About Cars, the truthaboutcars.com, also ttac.com. That is T-T-A-C.com. I am here today with Chris Tun and Tom Appel, and we are brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it with eBay Guaranteed Fit. It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, again, my name is Tim Healy with The Truth About Cars. We are going to be talking to Tom Appel and Chris Tun about Tesla, Kia EV9, and our favorite cars of the 90s. We'll also have a segment a little bit later on with uh, Matthew Guy on on the garage floor epoxies he likes to use at his house. So we will talk about talk to Matthew about that as well. So Chris is one of our freelancers here at The Truth About Cars. And Tom, you are a consumer guide automotive. And what is your new title? Uh, publisher. We could stick with publisher. Okay, excellent, excellent. And so, Tom, you wrote something last week about uh, what happened. I forget exactly when it was. It was a little over a week ago, I think. I forget the exact yeah. day. But there was an issue here. So, Tom... For our, just so our audience knows, you and I both live in the Chicagoland area. Chris is in uh, in Ohio. And in, 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 Chicago, in the Chicago suburb of Oak Brook, I saw this on the news, and there may have been a couple other locations as well. There was an issue with some Tesla superchargers on a really cold day. So can you walk our audience through that and, and kind of what happened? Yeah, and, and it's unclear at how many locations this particular logjam took place. But uh, Fox 32 News in Chicago covered the story and and i think that their coverage was fair it was just a little limited but long and short of it was that there were long delays to charge at a tesla charging station actually three specific charging stations that we know about and and the story got interesting because it was very very cold in chicago as cold as it's been in many years and and i think there were static temperatures below 10 below so very cold. And electric cars, as we all know, don't like very cold weather. But what happened here was interesting because historically, Tesla charging stations have been pretty effective. They call them supercharger stations. And and they have worked well. And they were working well in other locations, including northern Minnesota, Norway, uh, upper Canada. So the cold shouldn't have affected the charging. Yet, in Chicago, especially in Rosemont, which is near O'Hare, we had this massive backup of cars that were not charging. And what was interesting, too, is that there were Tesla drivers who did not seem to fully understand what it was that was happening or why their cars weren't charging. And and a lot of this seemed to come down to, to mainstream media and then, unfortunately, unfortunately, politically motivated right-wing media talking about how cars don't, electric cars just don't work in the cold. And Unfortunately, there's 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 a lot of subtext to what happened here, and I don't think that the whole story got out. So the best place to go for news about electric cars is not the mainstream media, but message boards. <laughs> I did a lot of I did a lot of digging, and and I was looking for people who had been there, and I don't know if I found them, but I found a lot of people who had run into problems charging in the cold, and the problem seems to have been this: it got very cold. And there are a lot of new Tesla owners out there, right? They've sold a lot of cars in the last couple of years to people who are not fanboys and who are not Tesla loyalists. And they don't know their cars as well. And the thing that did not happen is these cars were not preconditioned, which is a thing that the car will do to bring the battery up to temperature to accept a charge. Well, the theory is, and this is a good theory, and it's not my own, that people were leaving O'Hare Airport 
hitting the highway or hitting Rosemont, Illinois, which is adjacent to the airport, with their cars frozen, right? And they, they get into the car, they, they had just been on a trip and realized that their battery had been badly depleted by the cold. They needed to charge quickly, went to a charging station that was closest, and one of those was the Rosemont location, and the battery simply wasn't warm enough to accept a charge. And when they plugged in, and they did make a connection, it seems, uh, the, the charging station was talking to the car. Uh, when they did plug in, nothing seemed to be happening. And what was happening was that the charging station was trying to provide energy to the car to warm up the battery to accept the charge. But that took so long, most people gave up, abandoned their cars, and simply said the system didn't work. Yeah, that's that's that, that I think is, uh, that's what I read in your story, and it certainly seems to be very plausible. Chris, you and I both test cars a lot uh, when we started testing EVs. Have you run into into this issue? I know the winter in Columbus isn't quite as nasty as here, but it can be quite cold. Have you had this issue happen to you at all? It's positively tropical today, Tim. It's uh, 50 degrees and (laughs) gray skies, but uh, central Ohio is a bit of an anomaly around compared to the lake effects you get in Cleveland and, and Chicago, of course. Um, I happened to, the, the weekend, the same, the same weekend that Tesla's had a problem in Chicago, I happened to be in Dallas. Uh, and I rented a Tesla for the weekend because, oh. you know, since Tesla doesn't have a PR uh, group. A PR team or a press a fleet. PR yeah. team, yeah, they don't have a press fleet. I've never really had the chance to test any sort of Tesla. So I had a standard range Model 3 uh it was a 2023 with over 50,000 miles on it, dents, dings, cracks <laughs> in the glass. It was, you know, the worst you can think of for any sort of rental car from a standard, you know, that isn't named Rent-A-Wreck. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was the second one we had that night because the first one I, I tried to drive out of DFW and they wouldn't let me go because apparently there was a maintenance issue with the first one, which is a lot cleaner and smelled a lot better. Um <clears throat> <laughs> so I took two days driving around uh, Dallas and Fort Worth area to just a brief weekend trip with my daughter. And yeah, the, the charging was, it was annoying. It, I'll admit the payment, the smart payment uh, through a, a supercharger was wonderful. That was plug in and go. You sit down in the car and, or you sit down and go shopping, whatever it might be while you charge and that was a very useful thing. But, of course, my flight got canceled, and there was no way, you know, my flight home to Columbus, there was no way I was going to drive a Tesla 1,100 miles from Dallas to Columbus. So I had to go to the airport, drop off a car at Hertz, pick up a car at National, drive 1,100 miles in a Jeep Compass uh, through weather that at best was five degrees above zero Fahrenheit. Did- but at least you didn't run into any cold weather charging problems when you had the Tesla, right? I'm sure no, Dallas I didn't. Isn't nearly as cold. No, I mean, I woke up that morning. It was Monday the, the 15th. It was Martin Luther King Day that Monday that everybody had the problems. And I had a charge of 83% when I went to bed, and it was 42% when, oh. I, when I got up. So it dropped 40% overnight when oh. it went from 35 degrees ambient to... 10 ambient. Interesting. I was actually going to ask what the temperature was in Dallas because I, I wasn't sure if they were yeah. part of that cold snap or not. It was very much part of the cold snap, and that's why I had to drive home instead of fly home because <laughs> American decided, no, you're not flying. Okay. Yeah, because I, I know I flew on the 16th, and we were delayed. I almost missed a connecting flight because of the delay. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I believe the delay was, they didn't really tell us, but I believe the delay was at least partially a weather. I know the jet bridge didn't detach, which was, a, <laughs> which was an issue. It was kind of like stuck to the fuselage or whatever you call that. And then uh, we did it to get in line for de-icing and that takes a few minutes. So we, I, I don't want to derail this this conversation with travel with woes of travel, but we definitely were, <laughs> we were delayed uh, almost an hour on the tarmac getting out of O'Hare. And I had, a, I had only an hour connection in Salt Lake city. So doing the math on that, I was the last one on the second plane and I was furiously sprinting from 30 gates like, down, down uh, uh, one end to the other. So Salt Lake is so, fun for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, obviously the winter was affecting everybody and, Again, just kind of going back to Tesla, Tom, you raised a really good point, and I don't want to get too into the political aspects of these things. I, I do want to write about it either either later today or next week. But one thing that's driving me crazy when it comes to electric vehicles, and I think I've actually written about it before, so I don't want to get too redundant here. I don't like, and this is one of those things, I don't like both sides of them, but both sides do do it a little bit, although I think the right side of the aisle is a little more in, in, intense than the left. Um, I don't like how EVs have become a political football. They are just, no. uh, they are a tool. They're in they power train. Yeah, they are a power train and they've got pros and cons, just like internal combustion engines do. And, and EVs do have, there is an environmental cost in the production of batteries and the production of the vehicles. And so, yes, you save a, a tailpipe emissions, but there is, there is mining that is done for lithium and all the other materials. So I understand that it's not, EVs are not some savior that are going to save the planet, at least not at this point, but they are also not something that the other side of the aisle should just be automatically against. To me, they're a technology and you should sort of, it's a technology that's still relatively new and we're still learning a lot of things about it, both as a market and on the engineering side. And I think people should look at it through that prism, not not through whatever the, whatever political party they vote for. It's funny to me when we talk about EVs that that one of the greatest advantages of an EV is so overlooked, and that's the fact that you never have to go to a gas station. And and some stunning number of people, and this number is a little bit stale. I heard it maybe 18 months ago. Some stunning number of EV owners have never been to a public charging station. And that kind of proves what a lot of us are trying to say about EVs, and that's that if you charge at home, you're golden. You, it's, it's, yeah. you, you never have to go to a charging station. You, you charge overnight at home, and you're paying so much less for energy, especially if you live someplace like Chicago where we're paying 15 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. It's so much more convenient, so much more efficient, so much more uh, less expensive. And, and, and yet the fixation seems to be on the public charging, which is a real problem if you can't charge at home. I get it. But, but there's a lot of good here, and, and there are obviously trade-offs, and it's funny how Americans don't want to give up things like range, even though we don't use range, right? When, yeah. the, Chevy, when the Chevy Volt came out and had its 40 miles of range, everyone was just crazy about the 40 miles, but Chevy kept trying to market the fact that most people drive about 34 miles a day, so it didn't really matter, and that car wasn't limited because it could go gasoline, but, but the argument crushed that car. Yeah, and I think Chevy actually did a poor job of marketing the second part there, that you could go to gasoline and get 300, 340 miles of range without running, without worrying about range anxiety, which I think I've always wondered why Chevy never marketed that better. Um, to your other point about about not going to a gas station, there's actually a story I've been working on for like over a year and a half now. I just keep backburnering it. But I spoke to John Volker from uh, Green Car Reports. Now he's a freelancer, uh-huh. but he used to be a Green Car Reports. I spoke to him a while back about why gas stations aren't trying to 
get chargers because gas stations make a lot of their money off of uh, the convenience store side. Yeah, coffee, Doritos. Snacks. They sell a lot yeah. of Doritos. Yeah, and why don't you know why wouldn't they set up chargers and people can sit for half an hour with the car chargers and snack? And I don't want to spoil the story because I do plan on writing it eventually, even though it's been a long time since we started talking about it. Um, you know, but there's a whole bunch of reasons why they don't do it. But it is really interesting that, you know, at some point when charging gets better, gas stations are going to have to figure out, hey, we're going to be losing people. You know, right now I, I make impulse buys when buying gas sometimes or if I'm on a road trip, you know, from Chicago to Detroit, I'll swing in while I'm getting gas and get some beef jerky and a soda. So like gas stations are going to have to figure that out too as well, how to deal with as EVs become bigger and bigger, you know, are they going to lose business there? Yeah, the whole argument there is interesting too. And one of the things that happened in the last decade or so is that companies like like uh, BP and, and Mobile, for example, the, their retail organization is now separate from the oil manufacturer, the oil producer. So they're different things. And how the retail responds to this, I think, is going to be very different. We're also learning too that Shell in Europe is doing exactly what you're talking about. They are setting up uh, retail charging stations that are very much like gas stations. I don't know how those are working for them, but I think that if you're an owner and you buy an EV, the familiarity of that is going to work for you, right? You're going to believe it's reliable. The station is going to be well lit. It's probably going to be under a canopy. So there's some degree of weather protection. And I think that that just makes the whole situation just a little bit more friendly and acceptable or accepting perhaps to new owners. I'd agree with that. And then just to bring it back to Tesla and what we started the conversation with, um, you know, obviously extreme cold like that is going to be an issue for all these EVs. But was it just Teslas that ran into the problem or, or did we hear anything else about other EVs in the market that also had similar issues? Did I actually didn't, I didn't hear other stories about that. And that's interesting because I thought I would, and I didn't, specifically look that hard for them, but I figured that they would bubble to the surface. And, and, and actually, that's a great question, Tim. I don't know the answer. I, I think the reason you didn't hear that probably is because the Tesla, partly because Tesla is just such a spotlight on it when it comes to EVs in general. But I also think um, the supercharging network, I, I know a lot of automakers are moving to that standard, but it's also a separate thing right now. And I, I would imagine that with with the message boards, like you said, I would imagine that Tesla has a lot of attention on it. And a lot of the owners were talking and probably a journalist or reporter, you know, someone complained maybe to the reporter and they went and checked it out. Or maybe they saw something in a message board, whereas the other EVs are, are using EVgo or ChargePoint or, or whatever, Electrify America. And maybe for whatever reason, the story just didn't quite bubble up to the attention of the of the media. Yeah, quite possibly. I, that said, I don't know exactly what would go wrong with a charging station that cold would affect, where the cars themselves, the battery chemistry is is what's most affected by the cold, and the ability to charge is is almost incumbent on the battery to be up to temperature and preconditioned. For people who don't know what preconditioning is, that's to bring the battery up to temperature so it can be charged. Um and, and yeah, I didn't hear anything. I didn't have an EV that weekend, so I didn't. I didn't deal with that. I think I actually did have an EV around that time. I'm trying to remember my press car schedule. I had a Genesis GV60, but I don't think I had to worry about charging it in the cold. I did charge it, but that was at the nearest charger to my house happens to be indoors in a in a retail parking garage. So I don't oh. think I had to deal with the um, 
And to charge point, I don't want to jinx anything. Also, <laughs> if, also, if you live on the north side of Chicago, please do not come to this charger. It, it doesn't work, even though it really does, because I don't want to have to share. But there's a, a charge point in a retail plaza in Lakeview that works really, really well. And it's also in a parking garage, so it's heated. And it's very, 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 very nice to have that. But So I did not have to deal with what those Tesla drivers went through. But I would, I'd be very curious... The next time that happens, if I run into that issue at all. But again, if I'm charging in a retail parking garage, I may never have to deal with it. My luck with EVgo and with Electrify America is so bad that I wouldn't even know if it was the cold or not. <laughs> I have so many yeah. problems. And I've been very vocal about them in social media to the point that I get a phone call a week from Electrify America. And, and the phone calls aren't very satisfying because they don't correct anything. <laughs> Yeah, real quick, let's let's talk about that before we take a break. Um, I, I just checked. I actually had the Hyundai Elantra, which is an internal combustion engine. I had the GV60 the week before, before it got really cold. So I didn't really run into any issues. But let's talk about the charging uh, the charging issues here, especially with the, what you're running into. I've, I've been relatively lucky. And like I said, the charge point near me works, but I kind of want to keep that a secret because I don't want people to know that it works. And then there's only two parking spots. So I don't want to have to fight for, uh, fight for access. But... Uh, there's also a Whole Foods near me with a charger that generally seems to work, and I forget which company. I've not used that one in, in a year or two. I don't remember which company that is. But Electrify America has been the one that I continually see journalists poking or posting about on social media having issues. And it's not just you, Tom. It's Jill Simonello, another journalist who lives in Chicago, I believe, has posted about it. I believe a few other journalists that I follow on social media who live in other parts of the country, and I cannot remember their names at this point. Uh, at this particular second, but I believe three or four different people I've seen have run into issues with, with Electrify America, and every time they run into an issue, it's not the only time. It's not It's not just a one-time thing or, oh, oh this one location's not maintained well. It seems like it's uh, multiple locations in multiple regions. So have you, can you kind of talk about that just a little bit and what you've experienced? Yeah, let me talk about one overarching problem that a lot of people are probably experiencing. And it seems like Electrify America stations cluster their units into groups of four or eight. Uh, and, and I think that that's the way they're designed. And one of the interesting things about them is that unlike a charger, a Tesla charging station, which is capable of, think of delivering generally 180 kilowatts of power at any given time, Electrify America stations can do that if one car is charging, but if you add other cars to the mix, the amount of energy being distributed drops per unit, which is very frustrating. And, and I've, I've never actually experienced fast charging, even though I've been at their ultra-fast or super-fast chargers. Uh, I never get more than 50. Now, over Christmas, Christmas Day, I was in the uh, Cadillac Lyric, um, which accepts power, and I think, at a rate up to 190, and and. I get to the station. It's in South Milwaukee in the in the parking lot of a of a Walmart. Not a very nice location. Not very well lit. It's dark. It's raining, and the only light is coming from the screen of the charger itself. And I tried two times to get initiate the charging through my app and through my card that I have from them. Uh, no, I'm sorry, through my credit card. And neither time it worked. So I ended up calling them while I'm staying outside in the rain. And first they blame me, then they blame the car, and then they reboot the station. The station finally kicks in. And and even though the station is supposed to be given up, uh, I think it was uh, up to 350 kilowatts of power, I'm only getting 50. And, and 
it's like why it's so frustrating. I thought I was going to be done in a couple of minutes. I had to sit there for an hour. Uh, and I get my receipt, and it says that at some point it was charging as fast as 130 kilowatts. I never saw that. Um, and, and, then, and then when I complain about this in social media, I get a call from Electrify America. And I'm like, I'm frustrated, and you guys didn't deliver. And I had to stand in the rain in the winter. Uh, and, and, and their excuse is they're making improvements. Um, yeah. That's the kind of frustration I think a lot of people run into. And it's absolutely hurting uh, EV adoption on a national basis. I, I would agree with that. And Chris, have you run into the same issues in Ohio? I, I know that it can be it can vary from company to company, as we said, but also region to region. Have you had, as you started to test more and more EVs, have you run into any problems with any of the big public charging companies? Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, Electrify America, yes, has probably been the worst of them all for, in my experience. I have not used them as often partially because of their reputation for being unreliable. And I have generally been happy with EVgo stations nearby um, and ChargePoint. Uh, but my, my the infrastructure around here seems focused more on the 50 to you know 120 kilowatt hour range. And there are only, if I recall four locations in the metro area of about 2 million people. Uh, there's about four spots scattered around the area with the 350 kilowatt uh, ultra high feed, uh, high speed DC fast charging. And none of them are particularly close to me. I have to drive 10, 15, 20 miles to an out of the way Walmart or Meyer uh, parking lot. And again, they're not always in the most conducive locations for me to sit and charge. So I'll I'll go to a nearby grocery store or there's a, a library nearby that has four uh, 50 kilowatt charge point stations that are free, which are wonderful uh, if they're not in use. Um, there's a library and a brewery right uh, right next to each other. So go in, read a book or have a pint and, and uh, charge while just, I'm Just done. don't have too many pints. At, <laughs> like I said, a pint. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. We always drive and drink or, no, drink, drive responsibly. That You know what I'm trying to say. I, I do. I do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Understood. Yes. Understood. Um, but yes, Electrify America has been the least reliable in my experience because you plug in, you try to get it to start, and it you walk away, you go try to start your shopping, and then you'll get a notification five, ten minutes in while you've got three or four things in your cart already that, hey, charging stopped. No, it's not done. No, you can't make it home with the charge you have, but you're going to have to put everything back or leave all of this rotting produce in a cart in a, in a Walmart while you go deal with the charging situation. There never seems to be a good reason either for no. why it just stops. That happened to me Christmas Day, the, 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 the scenario I was just sharing, where it just stopped. It was very strange. I had to get out and reboot it. Luckily, I didn't have to make another phone call, but yeah, very weird situation. And you wonder what triggers that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I will tell you my last experience with Electrify America went okay. It went better than what you guys just went through. I had a Nissan Leaf over Thanksgiving, and as we all know, Nissan has a different charging standard. I believe it's called, I always pronounce, is it, I don't know if it's Chad Emo or Chadmo. An emo guy named Chad or whatever. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to find a, an Emo or a Chad Emo station 
a little bit harder than normal. And I, I found one near my parents' house over Thanksgiving weekend, about 15 minute drive away. And that one, it, it had a hard time hooking up for whatever reason. It had a hard time reading the car and, and eventually, or maybe it was reading my credit card. Eventually I played with it for like five or 10 minutes and eventually it did work. And I don't remember exactly why it was giving me a hard time at first, but eventually I got it to read the vehicle and start charging. And I didn't have time to get, uh, I had some place to be and I didn't have time to fully charge the vehicle, but I got enough miles to get home or to get where I needed to go. And the money wasn't too bad. It was like $7 or $8 or whatever. And it gave me plenty of juice. And I got it. I was only there for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. So I got it charged relatively quickly. But it was definitely, definitely took a while. It took me almost as long to get to start charging as it did to charge. So for whatever reason, there was definitely an issue with the car hooking up, uh, hooking up to the to the Archify America station. So I, I think they are the one that has the biggest issue. Tim, that is part of the hassle, too, is that you can try one, two, three times and waste a half an hour of your time before you learn you're not going to get a charge at that station at all. And and it, that's part of the problem is that you waste so much time and you still have this long charge in front of you after that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and the funny thing that happened to me, too, Christmas Eve, funny in a weird, like, I wasn't there sort of way, but I was – was while I was trying to get the station to work, while I'm on the phone with an operator, the operator decides at some point, though I told her I was standing in the rain, to try to get me to update my credit card information. I was like, oh, does this have to happen now? Right. <laughs> no, how is this going to advance the situation I'm in now? Because I'm standing in the rain. Right. So just to bring it back to Tesla, before we end the segment and, and roll into a break, uh, I think the Tesla story that we saw a week or two ago you know, that had a lot of elements of of kind of media catnip. And I mean, what I mean by media, I'm talking about consumers of media in this case. Uh, it had, you know, Tesla, which was always getting a lot of attention and, and partly because of the antics of Elon Musk, of course. But Tesla is also getting a lot, of t- a lot of attention just because it is, you know, a, a new, a relatively newer brand and they, they're EV only and all, all the reasons why it gets attention. And then, of course, it was super cold and then. Like you said earlier, Tom, there was the political aspect of it, of, of some anti-EV folks saying, oh, this is why you shouldn't buy EV, all that. But oh, yeah. I, I think the Tesla thing, and the last 20 minutes proves it, it's a gateway into a larger conversation. You know, we, we came on to talk about Tesla, but we ended up talking about all sorts of charging issues. And I think there's a larger conversation here. It's not just Tesla. And it's not just cold. It's about charging stations that work. It's about how every EV manufacturer is dealing with that, uh, whether it's, you know, the OEM and how they precondition their batteries or, or how they teach their drivers. As you said, Tom, I think part of the issue was, was drivers who didn't know how the system worked in their car. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, there's, I think there's an aspect of that. And then, of course, as we said, there's the different charging station companies, whether it's Tesla and their own supercharger, Electrify America, ChargePoint. So it's a really big conversation to be had here. We could probably spend the entire hour on it. We're not going to because we've got a few other topics we want to get to. But this is something we're going to. This is something we're probably going to be talking about a lot on this on this TTAC podcast as the year goes on and as time goes on. So with that, we're going to take a quick break. We have Matthew Guy speak for a few minutes about his garage, about the stuff he uses. Uh, and this time, this week, we're talking about garage floor epoxy. We'll be right back.
And we're back in the Truth About Cars podcast, the T-Tech podcast, talking with Matthew Guy, our Stuff We Use expert. So for those who don't know, we often do some commerce posts on the site talking about products that you might use with your own car, uh, aftermarket products, car repair products, maintenance products, that sort of thing. And we don't just do, sometimes you just take a look at what's on Amazon and go by the reviews and go by how consumers have been experiencing these products. But in the case of Matthew, he actually uses a lot of what he writes about. So we're going to talk to Matthew today and discuss, I believe we're discussing garage floor epoxy. Now, this is a topic I know nothing about because I don't own a house with a garage. I'm in a high-rise condo. I know very little about it. I've never owned a house with a garage so far in my life. Uh, I grew up in I grew up in a suburban house, but we used the garage for storage mostly. And then, you know, I've been in apartments uh, ever since I became an adult uh, and the college dormitory, of course. So, Matthew, could you walk us through, and again, these are products you actually have used, not just what you've seen on Amazon and, and and not just aggregating reviews. So can you walk us through and tell us like, you know, which, which ones you've really liked, which ones you would avoid, stay away from. I know where you live, you get brutal winners, I believe. Yeah. So can you just walk us through all that and, and kind of tell us how it goes and which ones Absolutely. you would, uh, recommend? Absolutely. And the neat thing about these types of products is that if you've ever even done something like paint a wall, you know, you can do this. It's a very similar process to painting a wall. It's for a lot of these kits. Um, and anyone, like you said, Tim, who's fortunate enough to have a covered area on which to work. I was going to say your prized classic car, but most of our readers and writers have total hoopties that they like to wrench on. <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense, you know, just to apply a dash of protectant to the floor. And the cool thing about the epoxy, as opposed to just a plain paint, is that it really makes it easy to clean up spills, you know? I mean, if, if you're changing the oil in your car and a little bit drops, you can wipe it up pretty easily. Brake fluid, anything like that makes it really, really easy to clean up. And the product with which I've had a lot of experience is one called, one from a brand called Rust-Oleum, which you might have recognized from commercials on TV where they've got the spray paint and they go over the, you know, deck or whatever. And they make garage floor epoxies too. And it's intended for concrete garage floors. And the one that I used was a very, very simple one. Um, nothing fancy. There's two components to the product. It's a pair of fluids that come in a box. And the box, the, in the box, when you open it up, you'll find there are two bags. And those two bags need to be mixed together. Now, what's kind of cool is that when I used this product about 15 years ago, same product, it came in two cans, almost like two paint cans. One was the epoxy and one was like a hardener. Now they come in one big bag that have like a little thin plastic membrane between them. And all you do is, and this is going to sound inappropriate, but you just squeeze the bag <laughs> as if you're making a cup of tea. And then the product mixes together in that in that shipping bag that it has. And it's so easy to use. And then you can pour it into a um, roller pan or something like that that I used. It looks like just gray paint. And I used the kit uh, with a roller and I just rolled it onto the uh, garage floor just as if I was painting it. And you got to stay off it for a little while. Just stay off it for a few days. You can walk on it within 24 hours, but I chose to just stay off it for a while. So... Yeah, and not much, not much different for this rust-oleum stuff than painting the wall, which is absolutely fantastic. I have, uh, again, I don't know a lot about this particular topic for my own personal experience, but I do have one question. So yeah. we have listeners all over North America, uh, at least I mm -hmm. hope we do. Uh, so 
Is there a difference between living in a sunbelt state or as they call them, the smile states like, you know, like from California through the southern states through Florida? Yeah. Going you know, east, west coast to east coast. Uh, and then from where you live in, in Canada or from where I live in Chicago, uh, you know, winter versus a uh, um, place where the climate is mild all year round. Is there a difference there and difference in terms of humidity or how much it might rain in a given area? I know we're talking about covered areas, but I would imagine that humidity and, and that sort of thing may have something to do with it or, or does it not matter at all? Well, for applying this stuff, um, it's, it is good to do it in a dry, as dry an environment as you can. It'll help it to stick. Um, it also helps to do it when it's not minus a million outside like it is in Chicago the last week or so, you know. Um, and it's a lot of the same rules as you would use to paint any room in your house for this Rust-Oleum product. So keeping that stuff in mind, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to apply. I just um, did so in... You know, in in the summertime, it was about um, probably about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, I guess. And there's always lots of humidity here, but that was fine. The big thing in order to get the epoxy to stick is to take more than a few minutes to sweep the floor and to make sure sometimes these kits come with something called etching. And that's optional, but it does help because it helps the um, epoxy to stick. And if there's any previous paint coating or anything like that on the floor, try to get as much of that off as you can. And you'll have a much better experience with the epoxy uh, product from Mustoleum because it will stay for years. I had it in an old house for 10 years and used the garage every day. And the place looked almost as good <laughs> as it did when I put it down 10 years before. The cool thing about this um, Rust-Oleum stuff is that it's not just a gray paint. You can get a bunch of colors, but you can. I, I chose this gray and it comes with a bunch of paint chips, right? So you can picture um, just little tiny, they're called decorative chips and they're supposed to add a bit of grip and stuff like that. But I find that it just, it looks like a, a showroom floor, you know, like in a, in a, in a, in a dealership or something like that. And you just, um, uh, take a handful of these chips and just spread them out as if you were um, throwing out, I don't know, if you're feeding chickens. <laughs> you just, <laughs> That's funny. right? You just, yeah, you just spread out the chips like that. And, and I use a fairly heavy, they call it broadcast, right? So that I had lots of flakes there. And you can buy these flakes separately. So I bought an extra pack because I wanted to have lots on the floor just for the look. Excellent. We have about a minute left. So I just wanted to, to do two quick things here. I wanted to see if... If, this if these epoxies work well with those of us who have a lot of money, you can spring for a heated garage floor. And mm -hmm. also, just anything else we should know as we as we uh, wrap the segment up? They definitely work well with a heated floor. Um, it's not going to get hot enough. You're not, if, if anything, I don't think this would happen with the epoxy, but if anything, you just have more problems with what's called hot tire pickup. So if you come in, uh, you know, from uh, smoking your car, smoking the balonies on your Challenger, that would be more of a problem than having a heated floor. And I used just my garage was 24 by 24, typical for a two-car attached garage. So make sure to get the proper size um, kit that says it's good for a two-car garage, and you'll have plenty to do the job. Excellent. Thank you for your time, Matthew, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for having me on. And we're back on the T-Tech Podcast. Again, 
The website is thetruthaboutcars.com or ttac.com. That's ttac.com. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor, along with Chris Tun, one of TTAC's contributors, and Tom Appel from Consumer Guide Automotive. He is the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. We were discussing Tesla earlier, but right now we need to take a break and uh, talk about eBay, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride, and we're going to talk about a little bit, thanks to eBay, we're going to talk about what our dream car would be, because eBay is the place where you could find all the parts you would ever need to get that car running. So, Tom, what would be your dream car? Uh, There is an achievable dream car that I simply haven't gotten around to purchasing yet, but I want one desperately bad. I am very much a child of the 80s, and I was weaned on car and driver, and I worked at a service station and pumped gas in the 80s. And a car that I want and a car that I saw and actually drove around the service station a little bit is is the W126, the 1981 through 1992 Mercedes-Benz S-Class. These these Mm, large luxury sedans, beautiful cars. They're sleek. They're stately. Uh, they had a reputation for being flawlessly built in a way that cars are no longer built. Um, but but I, I need one in my driveway very badly. <laughs> I, and they're out there, and they're they're relatively affordable, and I guess that they can be maintained. I just haven't gotten around to doing it. But beautiful cars, and there is a coupe version of the car, much less or much less common. The SEC uh, that that might be the way I go. But but absolutely stunning cars. Excellent. And Chris, what about you? Well, no surprise. Uh, my dream car is a Datsun. Uh, Datsun yeah. 280ZX Turbo from 1982 or 83. Well, forget, sure. about, forget about 1981, because in 81, the Turbo was introduced, but only with an automatic transmission. Nissan hadn't been able to produce a manual that could uh, handle the torque of a turbocharged uh, inline six. So in 80, 1982, they started buying the Tremec T5 uh, world-class transmission that was also used in Mustangs and Corvettes, or, or Mustangs and Camaros, excuse me. Um, my dad had several growing up, and it's just a, a dream car. It's, again, an attainable dream car, although the pricing is inching up there, and good ones are twenty grand or more at this point. Huh. But it's something I, I love and something I've got to own someday. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've got – I'm going to cop out, and I've got two – Dream cars. One's more modern, and one is older than well, it was before I was born. So I'd love a 1969 or 1970 Boss 302 Mustang. One of the years had the available roof slats, I believe, and the other one didn't. I think it's the only real difference. Uh, there might be I, I forget off the top of my head. There may be a little bit of cosmetic difference between the two, uh, but either one, either model year, uh, that, that, especially the yellow with the black stripes. Always loved that car. You can still find them out there, but they're all. They've all been pretty much lovingly restored, and years ago they were thirty thousand dollars restored. I would imagine that price has jumped. So trying to find one is not easy. But those those cars always amazed me, just how cool they were. And then there may have been some mechanical differences too. So don't at me, Mustang people, and say, "Oh, this one had that many horsepower." <laughs> I don't have the specs in front of me. I don't. I don't remember right now. So I didn't bother to look it up before before this, but. But I think the 69 did have a slightly different power numbers or, or different engine as well than the 70. But they're basically very similar, and I love both of them. My other my other dream car would be a little more modern. Never had a chance to drive one uh, on the road. I've driven a few of the convertible versions on the track. Actually, a few, both the hardtop and convertible. But I've never driven this generation, I don't think. And it would be the Viper Coupe, the first Viper Coupe from the mid-'90s. Oh. Uh, I don't... You know, I actually always loved the Viper. I liked the original, but when they first put the rooftop on it, the hardtop on it, 
I think it's 90. I want to say 96 was the first model you don't quote me on that, but the GTS trim, the blue with the white stripes, just a, sure. just a lovely car. Uh, I'm sure they're a handful to drive. I, I've not had much experience with them. I, the last time I saw one in person was there's a car museum in, in, in Indiana. There's an, there's the Auburn museum and right across the parking lot, there's another car museum that I don't know if it's the same owner or not, but they definitely, so the one museum is all Auburn for fairly obvious reasons. And the, Across the, across the way, it's a collection of just random cool stuff. Cars that were owned by celebrities, movie cars, stuff like that. I think there was a General Lee uh, in there. There was some, some really cool, just, just random stuff. And there was a Viper GTS in there, and it wasn't anything special other than being one of the first ones. And I thought that was one of the cars that I thought was the coolest of the whole museum, even though it was didn't belong to a celebrity. It wasn't modified. They're not super rare. I'm sure if I went on eBay or or anywhere else, I'd be able to find them. But again, those cars—they just—they're just—they're just awesome. And 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 with that, we're going to you know, just kind of—I just, just again, sort of really wish uh, that was—I lost my train of thought there. But yeah, that'd, that'd be one of my dream. That would definitely be one of my dream cars for sure. It would be kind of reliving a teenage dream to drive one of those. So with that, remember, remember, please, that eBay has. Over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, which could be a Viper, Boss 302, or a Datsun. You can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with brake kits, LED headlights, roof rack, bumpers. Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber and not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We're all children in the '90s in a way, or one way or another. What were some of your favorite cars and some of your least favorite cars from that decade? I already mentioned one during our during our eBay segment. What if you could go back in time to the '90s and buy something brand new in good shape that was built between 1990 and 1999? What would it be? My wife and I owned, and it's a car I. I... Truly adored. My wife spent most of the time in it. I had an Integra, an Acura Integra at the time, which was a fantastic car. But she drove a 1995 Jetta GLX. That's the Volkswagen Jetta. And the GLX is equipped with the uh, the 2.8 liter VR6, the earlier two-valve version of that engine. And and that engine was, was just a, a honey that was always looking for a home. And the Jetta was a good home for that engine. But it, it's it's difficult to describe just how wonderful driving that car was, but the, but the 2.8 liter V6, the VR6, developed so much torque down low, but yet loved to rev, and it was just the perfect power plant for a sporty car, and the Jetta GLX handled very well, and useless in the snow, by the way, uh, <laughs> but... Uh, what what a great car! And it's a shame that that engine didn't get the love it deserved. It showed up in a lot of Volkswagens. It was in the uh, GTI for a little while, and it showed up in larger Volkswagens, and I think uh, even a, a version of it in the in the minivan. But uh, yeah, I, I would definitely own that again. It was just an effortlessly delightful car to drive, even in traffic. It's such a flexible engine. And Chris, what about you? Well, I may go off script here a little bit, and I'm going to say a Oldsmobile Achieva SCX W41 with the high output 195 horsepower wow. quad wow. four uh, dual cam four cylinder. Uh, my dad was often on selling Oldsmobiles at the time, and it, this was probably late 80s when he started uh, selling Oldsmobiles. Uh, and he would he bring home a 
the previous, the Quad 442, which was based on the Cutlass Sierra. I remember those. And things. then I would spend a lot of time at Mid-Ohio Racetrack, at SCCA races. And the uh, uh, the old Ziciva, uh SCX W41, I know, rattling off a bunch of uh, codes here, uh, was a won a lot of races in the showroom stock classes where the the cars basically had to have a roll cage, a racing seat, and that's the only modifications you could make to the car. You change your tires to sticky Hoosier tires or whatever it might be. Um, and legally and officially, those are the only modifications. There's some stories of backroom dealings and uh, <laughs> you know, trunk uh, modifications that came in the trunk that could add power or add suspension adjustability or whatever it might be. But to think that a small four cylinder engine could produce that much power in the early night, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. And it came from GM. Yeah. I understand that they were, they sounded like, and, and revved like a paint shaker. Um, but it's a, an atta- and again, another attainable dream car, if you can find one. And I've, I see very, very few of them on the road. Chris, can I ask you a question about that? Absolutely. You just touched on this. My The wrap on that car, I never drove a quad four attached to a stick shift. Um, but the wrap on that car was what it was so loud and the engine sounded so horrible that you didn't want to rev it all the way to red line. Was that really the case? That's what I recall. I was too young to drive it. Um, <laughs> my, uh, by the time my, uh, you know, I was of driving age. My dad was in a sales job and he was driving, um, you know, Taurus is a company car. Usually it was a Taurus or a Crown Vic or whatever it might be that year. But, uh, you know, in riding in it, yes, they were a bit raucous. But the fact that they could put that kind of power out. Yeah. Now, I remember, and, and I think well, the SEX actually had smaller wheels and tires than the uh, than the other Achievas for, for track use. Exactly. I think they went to 14-inch wheels because 14-inch tires were a little more available. Versus a okay. 15-inch. I, I could be wrong on the specs, but I that sounds right. That's a cool car. I remember it well, and I remember the buzzer surrounding that car. <laughs> Pun intended, <laughs> I assume, the buzz. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim uh, to have meant that, yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, as for me, um, I the 90s were when I became a car person, right? So I grew up... My parents actually ran an auto parts store in the 80s, but for a little while, I didn't want much to do with cars. I was just more of a sports person. I didn't dislike cars. But it, was just, it was just around all the time. Never really thought about it and until I got to about 12 or 13 years old, and all of a sudden, the, the driving age came within range, and that's when I started reading Motor Trend, Car and Driver. So my, my car love is really, with the exception of the Fox Body Mustang, which everyone knows I love, my, my, uh, my car enthusiasm really started in the early 90s for the most part early 90s is when i really became a car enthusiast so uh don't really have much for the 80s but the 90s are all over the place i I love the end of the fox body run so the 90 through 93 the cobra especially i didn't like the sn95 mustang as much except for the cobra with the mystic chrome paint that was cool Always had a thing for the first generation Explorer, which is weird. I know, but they're cool. They were cool. Looking. They were cool. They were cool looking vehicles. The Eddie Bauer stuff. I always loved that. I saw uh, those. Yeah, I remember that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I'm going to betray my Mustang roots a little bit because I loved the F body Camaros and Firebirds of that era too. In fact, I, as what you is, should. 
what was the is it WS six? I can't remember the, the trim level. That was the pod, WS six was the trim level on the uh you know the third gen or fourth generation um the top end Firebird that came out like in the mid to late nineties when I was in high school. Yes, that was yeah. an awesome car. Mm-hmm. I of course mentioned the Viper earlier. Um so those were all the vehicles that to me would be my favorite cars in the nineties. And there was a lot of crappy cars in the nineties too, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, there were but yeah, uh, Chrysler K cars come to mind is probably the worst that I ever encountered. But um, or my neighbor had, I actually had a neighbor, I'm still friends with them to this day, but they had, they had at the time a 91 or two, a 90 something Accord. And the, that thing was in good shape, ran forever. And the other car was what was a K car. <laughs> and I'm pretty, they like the Honda a lot better <laughs> than the Chrysler. But yeah, those, those, those are the cars that kind of come to my mind is, um, especially the F-Body Camaro and Fiber. I know that Mustang fans will get mad at me for saying that, but those were, that was a time when those two cars were just, they were amazing. They were cool looking. I think I had a chance to drive a few of them. They were pretty fun to drive. Um, didn't get a chance to drive them hard, mostly just around town, but it definitely seemed like they were pretty cool. So those are the vehicles that really, Chris, I had forgotten about Oldsmobile pretty much entirely. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up because. That guy is going to be, very disappointed. I know, I know. Well, when I think of Oldsmobile, I think of the cars from, from a little bit later, right before the brand went under. I love the Aurora and the Alero and the Intrigue. The way they looked, they weren't yeah, they, were they didn't always drive so great, but um, and the North Star engines. But I think all those vehicles came. Were those late nineties or were they early two thousands? Were they outside of our window here for this for this segment? Uh, early aughts, I think. I think that's when Oldsmobile yeah, yeah, popped up. They would put them right outside. Uh, we were talking cars from the nineties, so put them right outside that window. But yeah, that to me, so I'm all over the place when it comes to favorite vehicles of the 90s. Like I said, you know, that first Explorer was cool. I used to like, um, used to kind of get into Wranglers a little bit too. Although the Wranglers I liked were the CJ7s, which are a little bit older. But definitely, if it was from the 90s, there's a good chance I loved it. Just because <laughs> that's that's when I came of age as a car person. Yeah, so yeah, a, a decade before you, yeah, I was pumping gas in the early '80s, and that's really when I sort of came of automotive age. That makes sense. I think yeah. that kind of influences how. Um, that's sort of how influences how all of us, I think, become car people. But th- but it can also be what your parents drove to. You know, I, I wasn't born till 1980, but I like a lot of muscle cars because my dad grew up with, and those are the those are the cars that when I started reading car books, those are the cars that were being featured you know, Pontiac GTOs and Mustangs and all that sort of stuff. So, so that's kind of, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily exactly when you come of age, but it definitely has a huge influence. And with that, we're going to roll into our final segment here. We've got a few minutes left in the, on the T-Tech podcast and we've talked Tesla. We've talked our favorite cars of the nineties. And now we're going to talk about something brand new. I've driven it. Tom and Chris has not, but it, I think everyone has thoughts on how important this vehicle is. I'm actually looking at the notebook from last week's press drive right as we speak. I drove the Kia EV9 in California last week. And for those who don't know, the EV9 is a three-row crossover. It's large, similar in size to Kia's Telluride. And it's not the same platform, though. It's it's pure EV. And it's the, probably the first, well, it's technically the second mainstream entry in the segment because the Chevrolet Blazer EV launched a little earlier this year. Now there it's not the first EV of that size. There are several luxury brands that are already selling cars. The, the Lyric from Cadillac is in that segment and is already on sale. The Rivian, there's a few others, uh, Audi Q80 Tron. 
So there's a handful. Of, so it's not the key is not the first for the market, but they're the first with the mainstream nameplate. I think. Well, again, second, Chevy's tough because the the Blazer has technical launch, but has not been a very good launch. So anyway, um, <laughs> no driving. No, yeah, no, it's not. So driving the Kia, <laughs> I found it very interesting and, and very intriguing. I really liked most of it. It, it drove really well. Having instant EV torque and a large SUV is handy for passing and merging. Kia put some decent it handles relatively well for its size. We didn't push it super hard, my dry partner and I, but we what we did it handled relatively gently curving roads well enough. I mean, it's not a sports car, and no one expects it to be. It rode really well on the freeway. Uh, of course, these are California freeways, so we're talking about no, no very few potholes or, or bad pavement. Um, my only issues were the range was a little bit low on the top trim GT lines, 280 miles, which doesn't seem that low, but it's not exactly a road trip friendly. We we were getting, but we were de- doing decent kilometer, or I'm sorry, kilowatt hour per mile, kilowatt per mile numbers. We we did like 2.9 over 150 miles of driving, 145 miles of driving, which is pretty good. The, the higher number, the better. The the other issue I took with it is the price. Uh, the base price is almost sixty thousand. A GT line that we drove was almost eighty thousand. Uh-huh. The mid trims will be around sixty and. I just don't know if non-EV intenders will hop into that segment at that price or first-time EV buyers. That that remains to be seen. So, Tom and Chris, I know you haven't driven it yet, but, Tom, I know you follow the market closely. Chris, I know you do, too. I wanted to see if you guys had any thoughts on the Kia EV9 before we wrap this podcast up. Yeah, this is a great test of the public's willingness to buy an EV, actually, because this is such a family-oriented vehicle. And if we're looking for the first that this vehicle is, I think it's the first non-premium three-row EV crossover. I might be wrong, but I think that's its actual claim to fame. And and as such, this is a new segment for EV buyers and, and for family buyers. And it's also more of a primary vehicle. So to the extent that this vehicle can break into uh, customers' wallets and hearts, uh, I think we'll say a lot about where EVs are going in the next few years. Chris, do you have any uh, any take on Kia, or you just not really been paying attention to this particular vehicle? Or I've been I've been watching what's going on there, and it's an attractive vehicle. Certainly, it's a, it's a intriguingly styled three row crossover. Um, again, I struggle with the thought of a vehicle that is sized as a road trip vehicle like this. This is a be an, with a long range, this would be great for taking the family to Wally World. This is a family electric <laughs> family truckster, but it is you're going to be stopping every you know 280 miles at best to recharge for God knows how long. As we've talked about the unpredictability of the charging sector earlier, it is yeah it will be a test of what families are willing to consider. Because, yeah, the price is high, but when you consider the average transaction price of a new car right now being right around forty-five, if you look at a sixty to $70,000 vehicle as a not-quite-premium purchase, Kia may have a winner on its hands. Because this is yeah. going to be a great soccer mom. It, please forgive the slightly insensitive phrasing there but it'd be a great soccer parent vehicle on weekends you take the family to whatever kid sporting event there's room in the back for extra kids that you're inevitably have to take home from practice uh it's just not gonna be great if you're on a travel team and 
have to drive across the street <laughs> and sit in a hot parking lot or a cold parking lot of a uh, if you if your kids play hockey or ice skating or something like that and and stay warm um as you know those terms bringing it back to the tesla conversation from earlier exactly yes i do want to clarify that the gt line range is not the maximum range if you go to the lower trims you can get uh i believe up to 300 miles or maybe a little bit more at the long range but so that seems to be the secret on these is you get the yeah. longer range the cheaper the vehicle you buy because there's fewer options and less power so yeah and less weight yeah um and i think in, in the in the case of the EV9, I believe I'm double checking the stats right now. I believe the lowest trim is single motor rear wheel drive. Let me double check that before I get an angry email from Kia. Oh, the rest of them are all wheel drive. But the the range, even at 300 miles, you'd like to see a little bit better for road tripping, like you said. Although I think 300 miles for those for those folks who don't really do road trips and who can tra- charge at home are going to have uh, that'll be plenty. And, and for for comparison's sake, when I owned my Honda Accord, I would get 300 to 320 miles of fuel range in a week of driving. So it would be getting gas every week to 10 days. So if you're doing, and that would be, that was a commute of probably under 40 miles in a day for sure. So probably about 30 miles a day. So if you're just commuting to your office and back, or you work from home, like a lot of people do now, and you're mostly using your EV9 to run errands and, and maybe your parents live close. You're going to see your parents or you see your friends. 300 miles of range isn't terrible. Even 280 is probably livable. So Chris, really what it comes down to is the road trip. Can you do the road trip? And again, the lower range, I did just, I did just double check the, the lower trim Kia's uh, EV9s are available with rear wheel drive only instead of all wheel drive. So you can have a single motor, which will cost you power, but should in theory uh, help, help increase range. So again, it's really the road trip of that vehicle. If you can, if you can charge it quickly on a road trip, if you can find charging stations every so often along your route and charge, charge fast, charge quickly. And Kia is promising a pretty good number on 10%, 80%. I think it's 25 minutes, something like that. Then you're all right. But so for around town, I think that vehicle will do really well, but road tripping, it's going to be a little trickier. Yeah. 25 minutes is, is acceptable. By the time you've got your beef jerky, uh, mm-hmm. you, you should be good to go. It, it, yeah, assuming the charging is there, and I actually yep. was looking at, um, you know, when when my family road trips, we usually stop at a truck stop for our fuel stops. The restrooms are larger and, in most cases, cleaner, and there's more options for for beef jerky and all that at, at a uh, major you brand. You can actually get a stop. full meal. Yeah, right. I actually forgot that. Uh, Pilot and Traveling, or I'm sorry, Pilot and Flying J, which are the same company, have a, a partnership now with EVGO where they're putting in EV charging stations at truck stops along major interstate highways. I know there's one that opened up a month or two ago, about 20 miles west of Columbus in London, Ohio, which is in the middle of nowhere, you know, relatively, but it's a great midway stop if you're driving across I-70 from Denver to Oh, I don't know, Philadelphia or whatever it might be. Um, it, it, it's if this infrastructure does work and we can get that 350 kilowatts of charging uh, on the 800 volt ar- architecture that Kia, 
Hyundai, Genesis, and I think Porsche are using, that high-speed charging is going to make road tripping a lot more feasible. It just needs it just needs to work and be easy. But yeah, that's the key. And, and again, that 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 loops back to our earlier conversation. You know, once charging is more plentiful, once people understand it better, as the Tesla drivers need to need to do, and once they handle, once they figure out they being engineers, once they figure out ways to keep batteries from degrading so much in extreme cold and extreme heat, I think that'll be a huge a huge change, and that'll be a big part of larger EV adoption. So, so again, just to kind of talk about the Kia EV9 specifically, my thoughts on it were that it, that it really, again, it's, it's a really good, it's going to be a great around town vehicle. I, I like the styling better than Telluride. I think, I think Telluride looks good, but it's a little bit boring. It does. Whereas the, whereas the EV9 looks good, but it's a little more risky styling wise. Kia did a nice job in the interior. The materials, if you poke and prod at them, they felt nice on the on initial touch poke and prod a little bit. They felt a little down market for the price for almost 80 grand, but, but not, not terrible at all. Um, much better than what we've seen Kia from, seen from Kia in the past. The only other issue I had was uh, our, my first stint behind the wheel was like 60 miles. And in the final five miles or so, the driver's seat got a little uncomfortable, but for shorter drives, it was fine. And I'm, I, I actually got myself in the third row without too much trouble too. And I'm six foot one. So overall, I think the EV9 is a strong package. I just don't know if it's a road trip vehicle and that's, that's going to be the question with all these EVs. And that's, again, we're tying it back to what we talked about at the start, at the start of the hour, right? We're talking about, you know, how EV charging changes everything when it comes to driving a vehicle and, and planning your routes and doing road trips. And as you said, Tom, some Tesla drivers found it out the hard way when they got back from O'Hare uh, a week or a week yep. or two ago. Yeah. So well, hopefully, Tim, that in a year we can have this conversation and everything is much better, right? The first stations under the the uh, what is it the uh, the new um, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Act are being built now. There's five billion dollars being invested in stations. If the quality and and operational efficiency of those is good, which is a big question mark, maybe this isn't a big question next year. Yeah, let's let's hope. I my personal take is, and again, this is something I want to write about more in the future. And we could spend a whole hour on this topic, so I didn't want to talk about it too much. But we, you know, I, I definitely think putting politics aside, there's a lot of just a lot of exciting questions I have about EV growth, and I, I'd be curious to see in a year from now if, like you said, if the charging infrastructure is better, but also if there's more EVs on the market. If the range has improved, if charging times have improved, you know, whatever OEMs can do on their end, reconditioning systems, batteries that handle heat and cold better. So I'm really I'm really curious to see what's going to be what the market will be like in a year. Uh, I, I think it'll be probably fairly close to what it is now with a higher percentage of EV getting market share. And I, I would assume that hopefully some of the charging station issues have been, if not fully resolved, at least improved. So we'll see in a year. And that's a good, that's a good place to end it. Again, this is the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for the Truth About Cars. Today we've had on Tom Appel from Consumer Guide Automotive. He's the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. And Tom, we thank you for your time. My pleasure. And then we've also had contu- contributor Chris Tun, who, who writes for the Truth About Cars, does reviews for us uh, as well. Chris, again, thank you for your time. Absolutely, anytime. And we thank eBay Motors for bringing the podcast to you. eBay Motors.
Chris is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. With eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.